weeks from today on October the 15th. And so if you're interested, we need to know uh, as soon as possible. <clears throat> the uh, official deadline is two Tuesdays from now. But you can let us know by going to the Church Center app and uh, registering there. Or if you'd like, you can just take the connection card, write baptism on the bottom line, check it, give us your contact information, and we will be in touch with you, with you this week. So thank you. This morning we're returning to our sermon series from the book of Acts, and I will be teaching from Acts 19, verses 1 through 20, and I'm going to read those verses now, uh, Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. I would invite you to stand as I read these verses. <clears throat> Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And they said, And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail 
mightily. This is God's word. Please be seated. I want to begin by asking you a question. It's not a, a trick question. It's an honest questions. question. Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? And I have in mind everything that the Scripture tells us the Spirit wants to do in our lives. In other words, do you want to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Spirit of God living in you? Do you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God? Do you want to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience? Do you want God to use gifts of the Spirit that he gives you? Do you want the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and lead you in repentance and then lead you in the ways of righteousness? And so do you want to experience everything that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life? You know, I truly hope that you do, and I hope that I do, because we can't begin to live the life God wants us to live on our own. Uh, Many of us have tried that with disastrous consequences. We just don't have the power, we don't have the resolve, we don't have the wisdom that we need. Therefore, we all need to get to a place where we have a deep longing to experience the Holy Spirit as fully as possible. But when you get to that place, now the question becomes, what needs to be true of me if I want to experience the Holy Spirit? What is it that needs to be true of me if I want to experience the Spirit that way? And that's the question that today's passage answers. In Acts 19, verses 1 through 20, Luke sets forth these two different uh, groups of people, and they were each deficient in their knowledge of the Holy Spirit Therefore, they each, initially at least, they each failed to experience the Holy Spirit. And even though their their knowledge was deficient in different ways, they both needed to understand the same thing. Namely, to experience the Holy Spirit, we must be rightly related to Jesus. And this this is our takeaway from today. If we want to experience the Holy Spirit, we need to be rightly related to Jesus. And this really makes sense in light of what Jesus said in, in John 16, 14. Jesus said, I'm going to return to the Father, and I'm going to send you the Spirit. And he said, one of the main core commitments of the Spirit is he will glorify me. And so what the Holy Spirit does is show people how glorious Jesus is. And so if we want to experience the Spirit, who has this commitment to glorifying Jesus, then we also need to be rightly related to the Jesus whom he is glorifying. And so today's passage, we have these two events that show different aspects of that. The first one emphasizes our our conversion, our entrance into the body of Christ. And we see in verses 1 through 7 that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion when we believe in the Lord Jesus. Acts 19 takes place in the city of of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was a a large city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, estimated to have about 200,000 people 
in, in the city. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other city where he planted, he and his team planted a church. We pick up the narrative in 19.1 and we read that, and it happened while Apollos, whom we were introduced to in the previous chapter, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples. <clears throat> Everywhere in the book of Acts, when you see the term disciple, it's referring to a disciple of Jesus, a, 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 a learner, a student of Jesus. And, uh, and so we, we, we take that as the, the understanding here, but there was something deficient about their, their discipleship. Uh, they claimed to be disciples of Jesus, but something was off. And that seems to be the case because Paul questions them about their, their experience with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was something they said or something they did. But uh, here's how the conversation went. Paul said to them, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And it probably isn't the case that they were saying they were completely ignorant, that they didn't even know that the, that the, uh, the Holy Spirit existed, but they, they were probably saying that they hadn't heard that the Spirit had been poured out upon followers of Jesus. And so Paul asked, verse 3, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And that was the key piece of information that Paul needed. And so in verse 4 he says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. You may remember the accounts when John went to uh, the Jordan River and people came to him and he baptized them as a baptism of repentance. It was a preparatory baptism. It was preparing people for the coming Messiah. And John told them, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's somebody coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he said, believe in him. And so he pointed forward to the Messiah. And so repentance alone isn't enough. Turning from your sins isn't enough. You have to turn in faith to Jesus. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so this is a unique situation. This doesn't happen today. But Paul went to Ephesus and he found these disciples who had been baptized with the baptism of John, so they had turned from their sin. They said, I don't want to sin anymore, but they had not believed in Jesus Christ. And so their, their, their experience, they weren't rightly related to Jesus, therefore they had not experienced the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you may have noticed that it, we aren't explicitly told that they believed in Jesus. What we find in the book of Acts is that when someone is converted, there are these three things that happen. They repent, they have faith, and then they're baptized. Repentance is turning from sin. Faith is believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died for my sins. He raised on the third day, vindicating him of everything that he said. 
all the accusations against him, and then they're baptized as an acted-out parable, a way of expressing what has happened to them spiritually. It's when they go public with their faith. It's very rare, though, that all three are found. Sometimes one, sometimes two are mentioned, but when one is mentioned, the other two are assumed. When two are mentioned, the third is assumed, and that's the case here. We're told that they had repented. We're told that they, they were baptized. And so we can rest assured that they also believed. Now, note that these disciples are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we'll find that phrase in uh, twice more in this passage in verse 13 and verse 17. That's what one of the things that ties these two uh, accounts together. But the name of Jesus signifies everything he is and everything he does. So when they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, they were making this, this uh, comprehensive declaration, I believe in Jesus, who he is, and everything he does. It is my desire to walk with him throughout this life. And so our baptism, four weeks, four weeks from today, when people are baptized, that's going to be their declaration. In essence, they will be saying, because I believe that Jesus died for my sin, and rose again on the third day. It is my intention, with God's help, by his grace, to walk with Jesus throughout this life, no matter what the cost. And so that's, that was the, the commitment of these disciples who came to believe in Jesus. And what we see in verse 6 is that they experienced something very similar to what the original disciples experienced on the day of Pentecost. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Again, an observation from the book of Acts, there isn't one formula, there isn't just one set order in the book of Acts for how a person experiences the manifestation of the, of the Spirit at their conversion. And so here, for example, the Holy Spirit came on them after they had been baptized. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came first, and then they were baptized. In both uh, here in Acts 19 and in, in uh, Acts 2, uh, after they received the Spirit, they spoke in other tongues, as it says in, in Acts 2. And in that case, uh, Luke specifically tells us that they spoke uh, human languages that they had never learned. And so the miraculous aspect of it is that they were able to speak human languages they had never studied, and people heard them declaring the glory of God in their own, own uh, languages. And so tongues sometimes accompanies this uh, coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Many times, most times actually, the gift of tongues isn't mentioned along with conversion. So there's a variety when it comes to the manifestations of the Spirit. The significant thing to note is that it is always the case that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion when you believe. Uh, Paul said in Romans 8, if, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. And so if you want to experience the indwelling Holy Spirit, the first response, the initial, on, the initial response is faith to believe that Jesus, when he died, he died for your sin, and then he was raised again 
on the third day. So we not only need to repent, turn from our sin, we also need to turn to Jesus in faith. And then when you believe in Jesus, you're rightly related to him and you're given the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I want to, I want to be careful how I say this, but I think it's important to say that there is a condition analogous to the condition of the disciples that Paul found in Ephesus. For example, it is possible to grow up going to church your whole life. It's possible to hear the words, Jesus died for your sin. It's possible to come to the place where you, you just vow in your heart, I want to be a, a moral person. And so you say, I want to try to quit these sins and I want to try to behave myself. And yet, if you lack this peace with God, and you lack this assurance that your sins have been wiped out, you lack this assurance that you will escape the wrath of God on the final day, it may be that you have repented, but you've never really trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. That's not always the case. I mean, sometimes there are other things at play. There may be some habitual sin that, that, that has stolen your peace with God and that gives you this lack of, that, that kind of inhibits this, this assurance of salvation. But it may be that you've never trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. I would tell you what Paul told the Philippian jailer in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that's a place to begin. If you've never trusted in Christ, that's the first response, this response of faith. As well, the second experience we look at, the second event, shows that we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we submit to the Lord Jesus. And I'm using the term fullness to mean the full ministry of the Spirit as described in, in the scriptures, victories over the victory over the, the forces of darkness, uh, the power to bear witness for Jesus, the conviction of sin, the illumination, the enlightening of the of the uh, of the scriptures. In verses eight through ten, uh, Luke describes how in Ephesus Paul continued his normal pattern of going to the Jew first and then to the to the Gentiles. So he went into the synagogue, and he taught the. The, uh, the Jews he found there, but when they became increasingly hostile, as he explained that God's kingdom is being established through Jesus the Messiah, as they got increasingly hostile, hostile he went to the Gentiles. And he says he went to this, this place, this venue called the Hall of Tyrannus. There was a guy actually named Tyrannus. I'm thinking, what is his mom thinking? I mean, who names a kid? That, I think his, his middle name was Rex, right? <laughs> and so... But he went to the hall of Tyrannus, and uh, he reasoned for two years, and he had this, this scope, this breadth of influence. We read in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Even though there was great opposition, many, many people heard, and the reputation of, of Jesus uh, swelled. In verses 11 and 12, Luke describes, describes how God was doing unusual, extraordinary miracles. And Luke is pretty nuanced how he says it. He says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And so Paul wasn't doing miracles. 
right? God was doing miracles through Paul. And they weren't ordinary miracles. You think all miracles are, are extraordinary. Well, apparently there's ordinary and then there's extraordinary miracles. And here's what Luke is talking about. So that, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, and those are probably the garments, the cloth he wore as he was a tent maker. He used the handkerchief to wipe the sweat away. The apron would protect his, his body and his clothes from this, the hides he was using, maybe chemicals. And so the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So again, this is not ordinary. This is not normative. The implication is, is that if you are as holy as Paul, that people could take garments that have touched your skin, and people would be healed and delivered thereby. And so that's, that's not what he's saying. At the same time, this is not without precedent, right? Do you remember an incident in the life of Jesus this reminds you of? Well, in Luke 8.44, we're told that a woman touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. We read in Acts 5.15 that people laid the sick in the street so that at least Peter's shadow might fall upon them so that they might be healed. And so God obviously has the right to do extraordinary miracles anytime, anywhere, any way he wants, even now, even here. And if Luke hadn't, hadn't told us that God was the one doing these miracles, we might think, that's magic. I wonder if I could figure out how to do that type of thing. But, Paul, but, but, uh, but Luke is, is very clear on this. He's not talking about magic, which kind of uh, by definition involves invoking or manifesting supernatural powers through rituals and incantations. But he uses this, these extraordinary miracles to mention there was a group of people, this got their attention, and it made them want to be able to have the same power that Paul had. And so there were these traveling Jewish exorcists in Ephesus, and they didn't understand that Paul's power uh, was inextricably bound up with his devotion to Jesus. And so they tried to imitate him in certain respects. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus that Paul spoke. And they tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out evil spirits. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so this is how they earn their living, traveling around trying to cast out demons. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And so they, they were Jewish, but they used magic. So they were syncretistic in the sense they, they tried to, to mix the two. And notice how they put it. They said, we, we don't proclaim Paul. I mean, we don't proclaim Jesus, but we adjure you by the name of the Lord Jesus that Paul proclaims. And so it was secondhand knowledge of Jesus. And they didn't understand that you have to be rightly related to Jesus if you're going to use his, speak his name with any authority or power. Verse 14 says, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. 
And so this is the family business. It was probably very lucrative. And as you probably, I hope you know, Satan is a liar. He is a liar. That's his bread and butter. However, numerous times in Scripture, his assistants, these evil spirits, these demons, who are also uh, rebellious against God, they speak the truth in, in, in ways that are incredibly insightful, and they don't mince words. And this is what happens here in verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, and we, we get this, this curtain pulled back just a little bit into the unseen spiritual realm. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, and so this demon they were trying to, to cast out, inside this man, this man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And so this, this evil spirit wasn't the least bit intimidated by people that had a secondhand knowledge of Jesus. By contrast, if you look back in Acts 16, Paul told this evil spirit that was residing in a, a servant girl, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it obeyed that very hour. Because Paul was rightly related to Jesus, he exhibited the power of the Holy Spirit when he confronted the evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus. But these sons of Siva tried to appropriate the name of the Lord Jesus as an incantation, and they ended up being mauled, basically, naked and wounded, fleeing away from the house. And Luke mentions two specific responses to to this uh, incident as the word spread. And both of them involve people becoming rightly related to Jesus and therefore experiencing the Holy Spirit. The first response was the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Luke tells us that when people heard what had happened, fear fell upon them all. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so he's not saying that every single person that heard about this actually believed in Jesus, but there was this wide head, this widespread appreciation that that uh, that God had done something powerful in this this case. This realization, specifically, that Jesus and Paul were known and feared in the unseen spiritual realm. And this holy fear fell upon them. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. We're told in James 2.19 that the demons believe and tremble. It's not like they have faith, but they believe that God exists, and they're terrified because he is the one true living God. But since the sons of Siva weren't, were not rightly related to Jesus, they got, they got mauled. And when that became known, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. His reputation grew among the people. And the way I envision this, those who didn't know Jesus 
were likely wondering, do I really want to be on the wrong side of Jesus, who is known and feared among the demons? And for those who did know Jesus, who were true disciples, I would imagine they were thinking, is there anything in my life analogous to the presumption of these, these frauds who tried to appropriate the name of Jesus with secondhand knowledge? And that leads to the second response that we see here in, in this passage. And I, I would describe it as costly repentance, costly repentance. Proverbs 16.6 says that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. It's when you understand who God really is, who the Lord really is. You fear him. You have this appropriate fear. You say, that's who God is. This is how I should live my life. And so by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 16.6. And Luke tells us in verse 17 that many of those who are genuine believers in Ephesus had continued practicing magic arts along with their Christianity. We don't know how long they had been believers, but the fear of the Lord fell upon them and prompted them to say, this is incongruous. This, this area of my life is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. And so they turned from their sin. They, they repented in a very decisive and costly way. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so they didn't, they didn't sell their old magic books at a, at a discounted price to their family and friends. They're like, no, we are, we are done with this. And so they renounced their practices and these, these books, which probably contain magic rituals, incantations, and such, they burn them publicly. And that detail that, that they, they, they uh, estimated the cost to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And if these silver pieces were uh, denarii, that's what a, a common laborer would have made for one day's, uh, one day's labor. And if you add it all up, multiply that by 50, you're talking about 137 thousand days of work, uh, or I mean 137,000 years of work with no days off. And so that would have been millions of dollars in, in our day. And so this was costly repentance. It's akin to cutting off your, metaphorically cutting off your right hand if it causes you to stumble. The, con the, the result, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord is this message about Jesus. And so Luke is telling us that the success of the gospel flowed from the fear of the Lord upon the people and their costly repentance. As they submitted to the lordship of Jesus, they experienced the fullness of the spirit and their witness had a power. They had this credibility and this power that was, was uh, compelling to others. And the same thing is true of us. When we experience, we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we submit to the Lord Jesus. And as we experience that fullness, our witness is more compelling as well. We have this credibility that we just otherwise 
wouldn't. And so, by, this is an intense passage, right? There's a lot here. But by way of application, I want you to consider two things. One is very simple that I'd like you to do here and now. And the other is likely more complex that I'd like you to do as you go today and this week. So first of all, uh, in response to this passage, is there anything in your life that is analogous to these believers in Ephesus practicing their magic arts? Is there anything related to the old way of living that you just know is incompatible with the lordship of Jesus? Most of us just automatically say, exactly, I know exactly what, what it is in my life. If you can identify something, that's what need, you need to turn from with costly repentance. If you can't identify something, good news, Paul has these lists. He gives these lists of sins, deeds of the flesh. And the great thing about these lists is there's, there's just nowhere to hide. We tend to think, well, these are the really bad sins. These are not so bad sins. I happen to do these. And these are the not so bad sins. And we give ourselves a pass. But, but here's a list in, in Galatians 5. Is there anything on this list where you would say, oh, yeah, I need to turn from that? And this is what he calls the deeds or the works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19. Now, the works of the flesh, they're evident. You, you, can, you just notice them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. That's what we've seen in Acts 19. Enmity, strife, jealousy. Fits of anger, any takers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Can you identify anything in your life there that obviously is incompatible with the lordship of Jesus? If so, that's, that's the simple part. It's, it's, it's essential, but it's pretty simple. You identify it and... and uh, you know you need to turn from it. What comes next might be more complex. In the days and weeks ahead, would you invite God the Holy Spirit to show you what does the fear of the Lord, what are the implications for the fear of the Lord? If I really fear God, if I really want to relate to him as he truly is, then what does costly repentance look like for me? How do I decisively need to put this away by the power of the Spirit, even if it's costly. And I would encourage you to talk to a, a brother or sister in Christ that you trust. It needs to be somebody you trust, but chances are you need somebody to speak the truth to you in love. And, and it may not be anything you've never heard, but you need to hear it anyway. And I would encourage you to, to, to understand very clearly, this is repentance is not God's punishment for you. No, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repent. Because God has been so kind to me because he has spared me. He has just poured out his grace on me so many times without number. And of course I want to repent. Of course I want to turn from it. Because God is good. I want to repent. Don't be afraid of costly repentance. The cost of not repenting is so much higher than the cost of repentance. 
And so repentance is a gift. It allows us to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we ask that you would open our minds, give us the the will to see the things in this scripture. We pray, God, that you would, for those here today who have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give them this faith, allow them to trust you for salvation. And God, as we walk with you, we all recognize things in our lives that are incompatible with the Lordship of Christ. God, would you give us the, uh, the fear of the Lord? May we choose the fear of the Lord. May we delight in the fear of the Lord and love the ways of righteousness. May we hate the ways of evil. May we hate sin. And God, show us what costly repentance looks like. God, there are many people here in the room who have experienced costly repentance and have found it to be sweet, have found it to be precious. God, may that be all of our experiences. We pray, God, that we would encourage one another in these things. We know it's for our good, but, but ultimately it's for your glory. God, we want Jesus' reputation through us to grow and swell. We want more and more people to extol the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.